seemingly irrelevant. From There Is Nothing To Fear by Santissime, read by Sam Gabriel, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Nineteen eighty. Albus looked tired, Minerva thought when she entered his office. The headmaster was scarcely more than a hundred years old, but his face was marked by deep lines, and he carried himself with an air that suggested that he was only keeping himself upright at his desk through considerable effort. Beside parchment and an assortment of doodads, there were three mugs. One of them was half full of pepper-up potion. The other two, drains to the dregs, smelled strongly of the same. Minerva, he said, and then he paused, as if he needed to regather his energies in order to say more. I'm glad that you were able to come. She took a breath. I have a curriculum to revise, Minerva said. I know that, but I need to speak with you. Albus paused again, then looked away for a moment. I need to speak with someone. I'm not a part of your secret society. I know that you aren't, he replied. That is why I want to have this conversation. There is a spy in our ranks, he sighed. I fear that there are several, in fact. Without being asked, Minerva sat herself in one of the chairs opposite Albus. Is there anyone that you can trust for sure? A few. But I won't speak their names and ask you to remain silent. I know that you have been doing work for the Aurors. That was useful information in itself, and Minerva wondered whether to pass it up the chain to Ridgebet. The Aurora Aurea was not exactly a priority for the DMLE, not while they were fellow, albeit unauthorized, combatants in the Death Eater insurgency, but Minerva and Ridgebit had long suggested that Albus had an Auror or two working for him, and the confirmation of that fact could be important. If Albus's suspicions were correct and the Death Eaters had wormed their way into his vigilante group, then that made it more likely that the DMLE had been infiltrated as well. What do you need to talk about, then? Ah, Minerva, at the point as ever. Slowly, Albus drew himself out from his chair, then retrieved a pensive from his innumerable shelves. Its contents glistened and glowed as only the stuff of memories could. I want to show you something of what I saw in a Wizengamot meeting two weeks ago. The Alterburn Inquiry? Albus nodded. In short, I fear that the loosed dragon will have been the least of our troubles. Together they leaned over the pensive, and Minerva's thoughts and perceptions fell forward, down into the events of two weeks past. All fifty members of the Wizengamot were present, dressed in plum or black, and assembled in a half-circle of coliseum seating. On either end, the elevated seats were flanked by more level seating. These two sections, set aside for anyone who had been called to speak before the Wizengamot, were surrounded by a sort of low wall, as though they were meant to be penned in. Millicent Bagnall stood, and with the tip of her wand at her throat, spoke in a voice both sonorous and sonorous. Inquiry into the events of the 14th of April in Muggle London, conducted on the 29th of April. Interrogators, Millicent Montague Bagnold, Minister for Magic, Bartimaeus Cheriton Crouch, Head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, 
and the rest of the wizarding helmet. Appointed, elected, and hereditary, etc., etc. Minerva had never been present for a formal inquiry, but she knew that there was an order for things in such a situation as this, when something had gone desperately wrong in Britain, and the Wizengamot wanted to get to the bottom of it, or at least figure out how to best offload the blame. Every member of the Wizengamot could call for the presence of a specific number of witnesses, typically three, but a simple majority could always adjust that, and also had a given span of time to divide among as many witnesses as they desired. Out of an allotment of forty minutes, say, twenty might be spent on one witness and fifteen on a second, with a remainder of five minutes to expend the spitfire questioning of any other witnesses who seemed relevant. Due to these constraints, it was as important to coordinate on the calling and questioning of witnesses as for any other political machination. For the sake of the record, Bagnall continued, I ask that Lita Doddridge, senior undersecretary to the head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, Explain the incident in question, as succinctly as possible. At about six o'clock on the 14th of April, a rogue dragon was let loose in Muggle London, resulting in the deaths of eleven witches and wizards, an unknown number of breaches of the statute of secrecy, and widespread property damage, and a significant loss of Muggle life. Thank you. Now you said, let loose. Could you elaborate? On the 14th of April, the Department of Magical Law Enforcement learned of a pair of dragon poachers, Batilda Grimm and Miguel Angel Zuizaretta, who were hiding out in Muggle London as they prepared to transfer their contraband to an unknown buyer or buyers outside Britain. Hit wizards were dispatched within the hour, but the information was faulty. There was no indication that the poachers had in their possession a live and active subadult dragon, or that, in order to keep a low profile, said dragon's only containment was linked to the very walled network which the hit wizards had compromised in order to infiltrate the premises undetected. The dragon escaped within three minutes of their entry. Thank you. I give the floor to Icarus Shacklebolt for questioning. Icarus rose from his seat. I call upon Melinda Brunner from the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures. From the lower stands emerged a tall, brown-haired woman whose face, much like Albus's now, bore every sign that she was currently overusing pepper-up potion, sallow, dry, and sunken. What is your exact position within the department? Dragon research and restraint, Mira. We all do a little bit of everything, but officially my role is compliance and assurance. You were on the scene immediately following the dragon's death, correct? Yes, sir. What breed of dragon was this, exactly? Ukrainian iron belly. That dragon is not native to Britain, is it? It is not, sir. Why were dragon poachers moving a foreign dragon out of the country? It was in the possession of one Rubius Hagrid, and before you ask, no, he did not have a permit. I imagine that very few people do. Well, the goblins coordinate with us for the... Theoretical possession of dragons, but yes, we don't really hand out dragon permits elsewise. Britain is too small for ranching. Nowadays it's almost too small for the few dragons that we keep on reservation. A theoretical possession? asked Minerva, and the memory froze long enough for Albus to respond. Gringotts believes that it is better, or at least less costly, for no one to know for sure how many dragons they have. The reality of one dragon and the threat of nine more that haven't yet been seen is cheaper than the reality of ten.
How did Rubius Hagrid get this dragon into the country? asked Shacklebolt. He didn't, sir. He got it from somewhere else, apparently, a witch named Laureen Fenwick. Shacklebolt sighed. And how did she obtain the dragon? We aren't sure. Thank you. I call on Nita Donovich. Unless I'm gravely mistaken that there is no one by the name of Fenwick here today, but it is also my understanding that there is no ongoing efforts to apprehend her. Please describe the situation as you know it. Maureen Fenwick is dead. There was a brief correspondence between the Ministry and the Norwegian Danish government nine years ago on the matter of her death, which was uncovered during our investigation and followed up on. Her remains were found on a reservation for Norwegian Ridgebacks, not far from her nesting mother. After further consultation with Norway and Denmark, it is our combined belief that Fenwick was a poacher and was killed in the process of stealing additional eggs. Fitting. Now, how did your department come to know when and where to strike? We received a tip from the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures, Donovich said, with a scathing glance toward the witness section. We received it with very little notice, and did not have sufficient time to verify the particulars, which, as we now know, were riddled with errors. Thank you. I relinquish the floor, Minister Patton. You don't happen to... started Benerva, and Albus nodded. A Silas Otterburn, he said. It is Otterburn's position that his department passed on all the appropriate information a week earlier than Dodridge claims, and the DMLE merely mishandled or misfiled it, and they have documentation to this effect. The Wizengamot hasn't decided yet who is lying. If either of them is lying... Minerva said. Albus smiled sadly. I have no doubt that both parties think themselves to be earnest. The memory sped up. Figures moved about with blurring speed, both witnesses and members of the Wizengamot, till all at once the scene returns to normal. Brunlow had been called forward again, this time to be questioned by Crispin Hawkworth, one of those pure bloods who had shifted closer to Riddle's camp over the past few years, perhaps because of her family's failing fortunes or because of what Riddle had to say on undue mugglish influences. "'The Ukrainian Iron Belly is the largest of the dragons, is it not?' asked Hawkworth. "'It is, um. Hawkworth nodded. "'And how large do Iron Bellies get, exactly?' "'The Iron Belly can reach six tons in weight, with a length up to twenty meters, including the tail and a wingspan of fourteen meters.' As she stood there, reeling off trivia like it was a night at the pub, Brunlow looked more confident than Minerva had seen her at any earlier point. "'And how hot are its flames?' she asked. "'The Arbelli's flames can reach an excess of nearly two thousand degrees. "'That is extraordinarily high. "'I'm not sure that any of these esteemed members of the Wizard Gamut "'deal with such numbers on a regular basis. "'None of us work a forge. "'Could you put that figure in terms that my peers and I might better understand?' "'At these temperatures?' Brunlow explained, with an assured smile, "'Iron melts and it boils.' "'So, in your estimation, the Iron Belly is not a suitable pet?' Brunlow chuckled. "'With all due respect, Mum, no dragon is.' "'And just what is the usual sentence for the illegal possession of a dragon?' Ten to fifteen years in Azkaban,' Brunlow said, and then with a twitch of nervousness, "'Though, of course, that's a matter for the Department of Magical Law Enforcement.' Of course it is, agreed Hawkworth. Thank you, Agner, for the questions. 
You may be relieved to know that Hagrid's sentence was commuted to five years, Albus said. The scene around them blurred and shifted again, and then others were present on the floor for questioning, Horatio Abbott and another ministry worker, whose name must have been given before the memory slowed. Is it true that the couple responsible for this entire affair was employed by the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures? It was. My understanding is that Rubeus Hagrid was sacked yesterday, the man answered. His tone was self-satisfied and even aggrandizing, as though Hagrid had committed mass murder in cold blood and Brumlow had personally captured him, not seen the paperwork for his dismissal as it passed by on someone else's desk. It made Minerva want to transfigure him into a newt. Thank you. I call on Cornelius Funch. I have been informed that the Department of Magical Accidents and Catastrophes has put together a full list of the dead. Might we have that read out? And entered into the permanent record of the wizard gamut. Fudge visibly quailed. I don't think... Mr. Fudge, I do not care what or even if you think. Read the names. If you do not have a list on hand, then a copy may be provided for you. No, no, that won't be necessary, Fudge said, one hand scrambling in a pocket. Uh, Algernon Longbottom, of the noble and most ancient house of Longbottom, Lord of Braxis Malfoy, of the noble house of Malfoy, Lord Tiberius Ogden, of the noble house of Ogden, Lobelia Tower and Didicus Vane, the hit wizards who were originally on the scene, and the poachers, Grimm and Zubizaretta. Additionally, Amos Diggory, Selina Duffy, Walden McNair, Michael Quirk, and Gemma Trubshaw, all of whom answered the call to contain the beast and Santa's cuff, who was simply unfortunate enough to be nearby when the dragon broke free. Finally, there were 1,520 muggles who died, most of them from the fires, and 2,300 more who... That must be very sad for the muggles. But I don't think that I asked about them, Hawkworth said. The next member of the Wizengamot to speak was Riddle, elected representative to the Wizengamot for the Welsh, for a decade and a half, if Minerva recalled correctly, and perennial thorn in the side of four ministers from Leech to Bagnold. Today his leanness struck Minerva as the leanness of a sighthound, and his fingers, long and thin, seemed like the legs of a jumping spider. Minister Bagnold, with such an extensive loss of life, I'm wondering what cover story the Ministry supplied to the muggle public, exactly. Bagnold took a deep breath, as if she had been fearing this very line of questioning, but had prepared herself for it anyway. Of course you are. I cede my place on the floor to Selenis Otterburn, Chair for the Office of Misinformation under the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures. Yes, thank you, um, rambled Otterburn whose robes gave an excellent impression of the term ruffled feathers, as made manifest in cloth. The uh, destruction wrought was the work of muggle terrorists called the uh, Irish Republican Army, who used... Uh, let me see. Otterburn tapped his desk nervously while sheets of parchment folded themselves and moved out of the way. Who used thermobaric and chemical weapons in combination with each other. Yes, that's right. Thermobaric? That sounds Greek. From the thermos and the barrels, I assume. It's something about heat and pressure, then. Like a dust explosion that one might encounter in a flour mill. Or in a poorly tended potions laboratory, I expect. Otterburn glanced down at his notes again. Yes, exactly so, he answered. And these chemical weapons that you mentioned? 
How do they play into the Ministry's official explanation? I'm sick, Otterburn stammered, before an assistant leaned over and whispered something in his ear. Is that in which the knuckles called nerve gas? They're, these are the organic chemicals which can have all kinds of effects. In this case, we're saying the nerve gas had caused hallucinations. In order to account for any muckles whom the obliviators could not reach, I presume, said Biddle, and Otterburn nodded happily. And the muggles believed this story, did they? Yes, all the reports say that they swallowed it right down, Otterburn answered brightly. Riddle pressed the tips of his fingers together very lightly, as if in thought. Please forgive me for straying away from the topic at hand, but I was wondering, are muggles so stupid that they will believe fantastic tales without any evidence? Or is the official explanation credible to them because it is in fact possible for a few rogue elements of the muggle world to cause such destruction? It is a... Theoretically possible, but I wish to stress that no such... Then what are we doing? Riddle said, speaking loudly over Otterburn. To protect our own communities from collateral damage. Is the Irish Republican Army not an actual organization that the Muggles are, at this very instant, engaged in fighting? Mr. Riddle, we have indeed strayed from... Diagonally and its auxiliaries are still in danger! Riddle shouted, as the discontent of the Wizengamot grew audible. Precautionary measures must be taken immediately! Order! Order! roared Minister Bagnold, but the clamor had grown so loud that Minerva could hardly hear her, and then Minerva wasn't in the wizard gamut anymore. Alba stepped away from the pensive, and, taking his seat, finished what was left of his third mug of pepper-up. You saw that no one could account for the dragon's provenance, and that the trail ran cold after the next link in the chain turned out to be dead just as no one could verify when the tip was given and in what form, he said. I did, Minerva replied, and then, because she could recognize a cue when she heard one, she added, You've discovered something since then? Indeed, he frowned. Fenwick did not simply die nine years ago. She died a month after her meeting with Hagrid, during the brooding season. Her body was burnt beyond easy recognition, and the story never made it back here until now. But the Norwegian Danes had stored some of her remains and, with British help, identified them as Fenwick's. It was a very difficult task, according to Dodridge. Had Fenwick's teeth been more damaged, it might have been totally impossible. Merlin's beard? There is one fact which stands out to me. Besides the burns, the, if you will, partial cremation... There was no other damage. Brooding dragons fast for the entire period that they are guarding their eggs, and it is a well-documented fact that a furious mother will take advantage of any free meals that happen to arise in the process of defending her nest. On the other hand, a well-cat incendio can produce damage which is indistinguishable from dragon fire. Merlin's beard, Minerva said again because it was still appropriate. And you think the Death Eaters are responsible? I do not have any evidence which would stand up in the gamut. but consider the following scenario. Maureen Fenwick, working either in full knowledge and possession of her own will, or under the Imperious Curse, sold the egg to Rubeus Hagrid, and then died soon after, conveniently preventing a future investigation from discovering her source, 
After the dragon was nearly full-grown, two dragon poachers were told where to find the dragon, and after the theft was accomplished, heat wizards were told where to find them. But not that there was a large dragon present. Albus frowned. And then there is the matter of the dragon itself. Shacklebolt was correct to ask why a foreign dragon was being smuggled out of the country rather than into it, but there is at least one place where such a dragon could be acquired. The goblins! Albus nodded. I doubt that any witch or wizard knows how many iron bellies they have, but the goblins certainly have at least two, which is all that one would need to get one egg. That may be the most troubling part of the affair. If the goblins don't approve of what Riddle had done, then they would have sold him out by now. Perhaps. They might have judged it not to be worth the trouble. We really don't know what kind of deals they've made, what Riddle has promised, or what they've demanded. But it's more likely than not. It appears that way. And you definitely think that it's Riddle? I do, for two reasons. The first is that he and his allies comported themselves too well, and this benefits them too much. There is, of course, always a certain amount of strategy in these inquiries, but none of the dead could be counted among his followers, and if we tallied up the resignations which have come and are yet to come, I am sure that this, too, will be to his advantage. This is circumstantial, however. What is more concerning is the second thing. Albus waved his hand, and another mug of pepper-up appeared nestled comfortably in his fingers. He took another drink before continuing. There is a friend of mine who works in the Department of Mysteries. An unspeakable? Even so. I cannot give you her name, as I'm sure you're aware, but I can assure you that she really is just a friend, and has nothing at all to do with the Aurora Aurorum. Nevertheless, Albus drank again, longer this time, even though, or perhaps because, at four mugs the additional effect must have been minimal. Nevertheless, she came to me. The ministry, of course, was evacuated as soon as it was discovered that a dragon was loose, and my friend was forced to leave before she could turn off an experiment of hers. And among other things, what she was doing, the particulars of which I once again cannot describe, gave her a record of the comings and goings in the department, and what she found was that, Scarcely five minutes after the Hig count had been performed, and every member of the department had been accounted for, wizards came through the main entrance. Augustus Rookwood, a foreigner by the name of Lucas Zarkov, and Tom Riddle. They remained for seventy-four minutes. What was he doing down there? I don't know. It may be dangerous even to guess, in case that closes my mind to other possibilities— the most troubling thing, however, is that while three wizards went in, only two came out. The missing one being, of course, Lucas Sarkov, who was presumably the sort of person whom no one would miss or, if they did miss him, connect to Britain. Precisely. And then your friend, seeing this, came to you about it. Well, first she destroyed the record and then shut down the experiment without any preparation, which set her project back for months, which is why she left it running in the first place, you understand, but crucially gave the impression that it had not been in operation during Riddle's visit, given that it had clearly been shut down quickly, too quickly, my friend would say, when the order came to evacuate. 
Then she came to me. Minerva considered this. Has anyone taken an inventory at that apartment since then? It is part of the standard procedure following any evacuation, though nothing like this has happened for a very long time. It appears, however, that nothing was stolen. At least we don't have to worry about Riddle acquiring a time-turner. One hopes. Indeed. The Department of Mysteries, though tolerant enough of Riddle, and his willingness to unfetter their budget and remove ministry oversight, to permit their Wizengamot's representative to support him both personally and politically, are not so cozy that we need worry about time-turners in the hands of the Death Eaters. Not yet. If he wasn't taking something, then he was doing something, Minerva insisted. Something which left Zarkov dead? A thought occurred to her. Does your friend know whether Zarkov's body was brought out? I didn't ask, but I would wager that they didn't stow him in a closet like... He trailed off. Albus? I'm afraid that I cannot speak further. Albus! Albus shook his head. Truly I cannot say. I will not burden you with the need to withhold information from your superiors, but what I know cannot be shared with them. Ergo, it cannot be shared with you. Minerva glowered at him, but it was no use. The man liked to portray himself as warm, but he could be as hard as ice when he needed to be, and it would take stronger stuff than Minerva to unnerve the man who'd conquered Grindelwald. "'Very well, then I'll take my leave,' she said, getting up. "'I don't neglect the raspberry twists,' Albus said cheerily. And without a further glance in his direction, she took an angry handful of thin, braided pastries and departed. Albus liked his twists crunchy, and they snapped cleanly in Minerva's hand, crack, 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 as she walked. That wild, conceited man, who did he think he was? If he wanted to direct a war effort, then he should have gotten himself elected minister. But instead he was running an off-the-books paramilitary organization at the same time he was running a Merlin-cursed school. And to top it all off, well, that's what Minerva was really angry about, wasn't it? Off-the-books paramilitary organizations had their uses, after all. Deniability and all that. She served a similar purpose, really. Working for the Ministry without being on the rolls. But he was keeping something from her. From the Ministry. It was something to do with Nimue's veil. That much was obvious. Zarkov's body hadn't been removed because Riddle had thrown him through the veil. If it had been something else, Minerva didn't know what it might be. And Albus would have known that, and would have had no reason to end the discussion. He had to have known, too, though, that she'd understand that Riddle had gone there for the veil. But she was already piecing it together when he clammed up. No, it couldn't be that. Which meant there was something else at play here. Something more than just the veil. But for the life of her, Minerva couldn't figure it out. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Days Witch, under a Creative Commons license, with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at samgabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, 
as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.